sacrifice. I did it for the love. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Turnbuckle Training. Introducing first your longtime fan, short-time podcaster, and former fantasy wrestling hardcore champion, Peyton the Worm Green. And his tag team partner making his debut in the wacky world of fighting fools, Zach. Crack is in my rider, Barlow. Crack is in your rider? Yeah, yeah, you know, like a like a writer for a performer with the amenities that you have to have available to them. Ah, I'm taking ah, a shot at Jake the Snake and Crack being in his writer. I was doing that too when I called myself the Worm. Oh, because they both ain't got no bones. Well, Worm is just Worm is just Snake, but like non-alcoholic. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is a show for wrestling fans and rookies alike. We're going to take you through some of the biggest matches, moments, rivalries, storylines, and wrestling history. Or at least the ones that I feel like talking about. And if you know nothing about wrestling, don't worry. Because as you will soon find out, I'm a scholar and can tell you everything you need to know. No, that was a joke. I don't know either. I'm right there with you, bud. So Peyton, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the wrestling documentary Beyond the Mat. Uh, It's one I've always wanted to watch, but never really have. I've just never gotten around to it. Um, And I'm glad I finally did. It's, uh, I've heard about it for a really long time. Um, It came out in 1999, so there are a few things, you know, that we will kind of update people on, you know, things that have changed as far as, you know, the people featured in the documentary, where they are now. Um, but, uh, it was actually branded as the documentary Vince McMahon doesn't want you to see, um, because he, in, despite the fact that he's in the documentary, um, and I think, I I was wondering, Zach, did you watch this and and ever at any point think, why did Vince McMahon allow this? Yeah, no, absolutely, because I saw the footage and I was like, man, how did he get the licensing to use this stuff? How did this... How is this allowed to happen? Um, well, that, and it's not, like, I don't mean why would Vince McMahon allow this as in, like, he shouldn't have allowed it. I mean, why would someone let something that portrays him in such a negative right, light? Right, that's, that's what I'm saying, is that, like, yeah. you would think that Vince could have pulled the plug on it and said, no, you're not going to be able to use all of this WWF footage in your doc because you make us look like garbage. I, I really don't know how they were able to get all the footage unless maybe I, – I do know that, you know, it was a different time and license – like, people didn't know about, like, laws as much. No, I, I mean, know. if you're a documentary filmmaker, you definitely know the laws surrounding your usage. I meant, of, like, Vince McMahon. I, I oh, no. I mean, they were I, – I have no doubt that if he could have taken this down, he would have. Um yeah. I think well, that it's and something obviously, where obviously, you know, Vince McMahon is interviewed. He gets he he gets to go backstage because apparently Vince McMahon for some reason was confused. He thought this was going to be a very pro WWE documentary or WWF at the time. Right. Um I don't really know how he got that impression. 
from what I've read, I mean, the, the, the filmmaker didn't lie to him. Well, that's um, the case with most documentaries, right? Is that the documentary maker comes in and says, I want to make a documentary about blank. And then usually the people that are at the center of the documentary think that their opinions and their ideas are what are going to form the final product. But that's not what happens. So really the way that this kind of thing gets made is that the legal paperwork is done on the front end. And then on the back end, you have no control over that final product. Well, and here's the thing. I think that when – I think Vince McMahon is so much in his own bubble that he thinks, oh, they're going to make a documentary about us. That's great. Right. But I don't think he thought about the fact that, like, if you show – if you're going behind the scenes of wrestling, it's not going to make you look good. No, well, and I think it's partially the fact that the documentary maker probably approached him and was like, hey, look, I'm a huge wrestling fan. This is a topic that has interested me. And, uh, you know, Vince thinks, oh, he's a fan, he's going to portray us in a very positive light, and that is not the case, uh, nor should it be. Yeah, it would have been not nearly as good of a documentary if it was just like, look at how great re- the WWE is. Yes, now the WWE makes their own documentaries where they blow themselves up like that, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's been some other wrestling documentaries come out. There's actually one that came out on HBO pretty recently that I uh, am. The name is escaping me right now. Um, but this one kind of started it all. And, yeah, I'm I'm glad that, you know, th- they, they would never get this kind of access ever again. No. So I'm glad that this was made, and it was made at the time it was made. It always seems like... Because remember, we talked about a little bit in our uh, Montreal Screwjob episode, um, th- there was a documentary being made about Bret Hart during the Montreal Screwjob. Yeah. And it's so weird that, like, that. what a coincidence. Also, what a coincidence that he's making this documentary about wrestlers putting their bodies through everything, and he makes it around the time when Mick Foley... Well, I guess any time you make a documentary and Mick Foley is wrestling, you're going to find him doing something crazy. So Right, but you get but. his his two most brutal matches, and I really do think that this documentary, not to spoil anything, I think this probably shaped the way that Foley thinks about his own career. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I saw that when I watched this. Um, so let's get, give, uh, I'll give a little bit of background on it. So this is made by uh, Barry Blaustein. Uh, whose other credits include the worst season of Saturday Night Live and Police Academy Two? Oh man! Um, <laughs> and uh, but he he's a filmmaker who says he has a big he's a big wrestling f- fan. He was like outed as a wrestling fan. Uh, people couldn't really understand why he was so into it, so he set out to make this documentary to kind of explain it. And from what I've heard, apparently, you know, that part of it was really well received. People. Um, you know, this documentary has apparently gotten some appeal from non-wrestling fans, well, too. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, that's probably part of the way part of the way this was sold to Vince McMahon, right? Is like, I want to show people that don't like wrestling and people that think it's stupid why it's so, you know, what the appeal is. Uh, yeah. Because, it, you know, it's possible that setting out to do this, he didn't really want to make a negative documentary about the WWF, and that's just kind of how it happened because of what he saw. Yeah. That's, that, you probably got a good point, you know? Um, so, uh, we're going to focus on a lot of wrestlers. The main ones are going to be 
kind of a, a, an interesting way to show three different people. We get one person who's like kind of the height of his career, Mick Foley. We got one who's kind of ending his career, Terry Funk. And then we have Jake the Snake Roberts who is like, I don't even know how to describe the spot that he's at here, but we'll and we'll get into that. There's a couple of other guys that because he really, I think you're right. Like I think what he wanted to do is he wanted to get rising action, top the retirement and you know complete decline. Uh, but the rising action doesn't really happen because the guys he tries to get don't don't work out. So I, I will say though, this uh, we're going to take a little bit of a departure. You know, from our normal... I'm sure we'll find something to, to joke about in here, but uh, we're going to be departing a little bit from our, our typical comedy because there's a lot of stuff in here that is actually kind of kind of sad. Yeah, and on uh, that note, you know, if, um, if we say something and you're like, that's a terrible thing to say, this is a tragedy, you're right, but this is also a comedy podcast, so we do have to try. Yeah, and sometimes sad things can also be fun. Yes. Like Jake the Snake's Crack Rider. Oh God! Uh, give me one second. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my medicine so I stop losing my train of thought. You good man? Okay, so the documentary kind of starts, uh, it's, it has a pretty ambitious start because uh, our filmmaker here decides that, uh, you know, he's going to go straight to the top, he's going to go right to the WWF to begin this documentary. Uh, we get, uh, immediately, is here's where I was like, this is uh, incredible, incredible access, you know, that I, you know, you wouldn't think that somebody would get because he's backstage um, we see Vince McMahon, he's working with, a uh, Dude Love on, like, a scene. Uh, Vince Russo, one of the writers, is, uh, going over a script with Sable. Uh, we even see Jim Johnson, who is, uh, recording entrance themes. And then we even see Jim Ross in a role we don't normally see him in. Uh, because, uh, Jim Ross, known as being, you know, Raw's flagship play-by-play commentator was also working in the office as a uh, talent relations. So we get to see things from that perspective, too. Yeah, this was mind-boggling to me because, I mean, it looks like, because we're seeing, like, concept art for costumes and writers and stuff, and it looks a lot more Disney than I thought it would, you know? Like, it, it it's so very, um, I don't know, everything looks super above bored and super professional and i always thought that the backstage and the the behind the scenes of the wwe uh was more of a contained dumpster fire than anything else but it looks really slick here yeah and i it probably is sometimes uh and i think maybe we're seeing it a little bit more when it's not like actually in a show and uh so it's a little bit more contained but no i think the the disney um analogy really works here uh and this is at the height of WWF's popularity, 1999. It, it, this is like the 97 through 99 years, which is when they really are the most popular. 
Um, so that uh, that is something that's pretty cool. Um, we hear from the merchandising people um, who says that uh, wrestlers are basically just like the Muppets. And I mean, yeah, the, that's a very weird comparison that he makes, but it's an apt one. Who is uh who is wrestling's Kermit the Frog? John Cena. I that was very fast. It's like you knew I would ask that. And uh obviously McFoley's Fozzie Bear. Oh, nice. What else you got? Uh, I so the, I can I can do it. Oh wait, you can do what? I can I can Hunter Hearst Helmsley is Sam Eagle. Come on, Peyton, give me a hard oh, one. Oh, nice, nice. I like that. Um Hornswoggle I, is Scooter. What more do you want from me? Uh, okay. I, I, I want I I want this to end <laughs> is, is what I want. Um wait, okay, but first tell me who Gonzo is. Ooh, Gonzo. That's actually kind of a tough one. Um and I'm gonna go with Ooh. Okay, I have to reverse a decision. Mick Foley is Gonzo, because he's always launching things out of cannons, you know. <laughs> okay. And he's a big goofster. Um, and, ooh, then who is Fozzie Bear? Maybe Fozzie Bear's The Rock. I'm not sure. You've stumped me. You've, you've, okay, you've done it. I give up. I, I didn't, I didn't think that would be that hard. Um, so the first wrestler we get a spotlight on is Draws, uh, Darren Drawsdov, um, who unfortunately has a very short WWE and wrestling career, um, after he ends up getting paralyzed uh, not too long after this documentary comes out. Yikes. Uh, but he's the one we get a spotlight on. So he's he's someone who's trying to first make his mark in the WWF. And he comes to Vince McMahon to have a meeting and discuss his character, discuss what he's going to do. Apparently he's the next rising star because he can throw up on command. Yeah. And, I mean, I think that's part of the way that Vince operates is that you make every guy think he's the next rising star. You know, um, probably Vince knows that being able to throw up on command is something that is a short lived gimmick. I mean, I think that he has an eye enough for the the industry that he knows that like that'll get some people, but it won't really be a a long lasting thing. Right. Like puke isn't going to be the next Hulk Hogan. We all know that. But he can instill that, you know, when he meets with the guy, he's putting all these ideas in his head and he's really pumping him up to think that he's going to be able to make Puke a huge success. Now, I will say that Draws does become, you know, somewhat of a name in the WWF, uh, and he may still work for them in some capacity. He used to work on their on their website uh, for years. I mean, he was, he was paralyzed not just uh, out in life. He was paralyzed in the ring, right? He was paralyzed in wrestling. Yeah. It was... Uh, a freak accident where he was going to be powerbombed, and apparently a fan had thrown something into the ring, and the guy powerbombing him slipped on it and dropped him on his head. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Uh, at the end of the documentary, he talks about that, and it says, you know, he hopes he'll walk again soon, which that hasn't happened yet. So, Yikes. Um, uh, so we're talking about puke. Uh, Puke is the name that uh, Vince gives to him, and he shows off him, literally, he tells Draws to puke in a trash can. And he's screaming at him, he's like, come on, puke, puke. 
Yeah. And which I said, this is the weirdest porno I've ever watched. <laughs> I'm sure Vince is made weirder. Um, but also I do have to say that Puke's ability kind of sucks because uh, he really just kind of spits. Yeah. Um, and also, is that a move you can do in a ring? Like, is that like his finisher? Well, yeah, that's what he was talking about. He's like, you're going to puke on the other wrestler. You're going to puke on the referee. Um, I'm not familiar enough with, with Puke's career to know if that ended up happening, but, um... I don't know that he really wrestled as Puke at all. I think, I think he's, the only time I, like, the only reference I know of him being Puke is here. Oh, wow, okay. And he went by draws after that. Um, he calls his mom and he says, you're gonna be proud of me, mama, my name is Puke. (laughs) Um, so we we decide instead to go go all the way down to where it starts, uh, to a little company called All Pro Wrestling, which actually is a decently successful independent wrestling company these days. Um, but man, the but guy at the head of this is such a scumbag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're a wrestling school in California. Apparently, the guy who runs it is a, is an accountant, but yeah, as, as you said, he's a scumbag. Tell us about some of the, the scumbag things that he does. Uh, doesn't pay his wrestlers if he doesn't feel like they deserved it, and if he does feel like they deserved it, he pays them maximum of $25, well, not maximum of $25, I'm sorry, minimum of $25, maximum of about $300, um, and... And they still have to make a $500 deposit. Yeah, they have to pay him $500 to be in his wrestling school. Yeah, uh, they have to pay him more money than he pays them, which is just disgusting. Uh, yeah, no, he's a he's a real asshole. Um, and you know, but he actually even says at one point that he pays pretty good money. Yeah, he's like, of all the indie people, I'm one of the best indie promotion guys, and it's like, are that does not seem right. Uh, and, you know, like, walking away from this doc, and, and specifically sort of this scene where you're seeing this guy and the introductory phase of uh, these wrestlers, I almost feel like the porn industry is a more ethical industry than wrestling is. Yeah. Like, I feel like they treat their talent better than wrestling does. You may be right. Uh, we do focus on two guys in this promotion, Tony Jones and Mike Modest, who unfortunately don't get aren't really known for much other than this documentary um the guy mike modest in his his full-time job that he uses to support himself while he goes to wrestling school is like a coroner uh, and goes and picks up bodies which sounds like a pretty good gimmick yeah man like what you should have parlayed that into your career i know right um uh, the filmmaker, Barry Blaustein, says that on the night he was there, they wrestled for a record crowd of 112 people. Yeah, but, you know, and here's the thing. you got to think, what was the admission ticket price for those 112? Probably 15 bucks, 20 bucks. You can afford to pay the people who wrestle on your card more than $25. Well, it's really sad when you, like, have to jump off a of shit for $25. Yeah, in front of 100 people. <laughs> and um you best believe that you have no health care. You have no if something does happen to you, they're not going to cover it. You're really putting you are risking life and limb quite literally for $25. Um 
so the narrator tries to, you know, kind of throw these guys a bone, and he uh, he shows Jim Ross some tapes of these guys, and Jr. says he likes them, and he agrees to give them a tryout, um, which which he, they do. Um, we go to an episode of Raw where they're kind of setting up the ring. Uh, Vince McMahon and Jim Ross and uh, Jim Cornette are watching these guys wrestle each other in a tryout match. Really weird to me. Usually when they do tryout matches, they'll have like an unknown guy wrestle a, a known guy, and that guy will beat them, and you know he'll he'll look strong, and the other guy gets a tryout. So it's really weird to see two unknown guys wrestling each other. That's Seems like a destined for failure. Yeah, because the crowd's not going to be into it. Uh, but uh, they seem impressed by it. But that's the um, thing, and and I think that's a through line that we see throughout this is, and I think that's just how show business is, right? Is that you're never going to get a straight no. You're going to get a oh that was impressive. We really like that. You'll hear from us, and then you never do. Um. Yeah. That attitude persists um, in other areas of the documentary as well that we'll, we'll get to. But and it's hard to see these guys because they're so amped, they're so hype to to get their shot, and they think that they really nailed it, but nope. Um, they get a congratulation from Mankind, but uh, you know, we really don't end up hearing from these guys... Uh, Ever again. That is cool that Mick Foley popped in and like, you know, uh, congratulated them. That was that was he's, nice of him. He's just a good dude. He's just such a good guy. So now we go to the the first wrestler we're really going to focus on here is Terry Funk. And you know, I, I we mentioned Terry Funk maybe a few times. I think on one of the ECW shows we may have watched a Terry Funk match, but we haven't really talked about Terry Funk. I think. He's a name that I don't feel like comes up enough when talking about great wrestlers. Um, I mean, it seems to me from what I've gathered here that he's really the guy that created hardcore. I mean, or was fundamental in shaping it. uh, Absolutely. I mean, he kind of creates ECW, or not really creates it, but puts it on the map. Um, Terry Funk is one of the few guys that has wrestled for WWE, WCW, ECW, the NWA, TNA, and Ring of Honor. Uh, He's wrestled for basically every wrestling organization there is to wrestle for. Um, Which is impressive. Uh, Where he's most successful really is is ECW and WCW. Um, But... You know, a lot of people have a lot of respect for Terry Funk. He kind of uh, takes a lot of wrestlers under his wing and kind of shapes them, one of them being Mick Foley, one of them being Tommy Dreamer. Um, The other thing to know about Terry Funk is that he always says he's going to retire, and he never does. It's basically like every Rocky movie. Right. (laughs) At the end of the movie, Rocky always says that he's going to retire, and then in the next movie, he's he's fighting again. And I think that Um, Terry Funk is the, like, quintessential... Uh, wrestling lifer kind of kind of guy, right? Like, how many yeah. wrestlers does this happen to? How many times have we talked about wrestlers that retire, like Mick Foley, and come back six weeks later? Like, it. I um, I want to look up because I'm curious. So, his first retirement in in that we see in this uh, 
documentary is in 1997. Now I'm going to look him up to see when his last match was. I'm betting— 2013. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so, you know, he—the uh, man has retired a lot. And after um, the doctors are telling him, like, hey, your knee is worn completely out. Yeah, we actually get to see him and a doctor's visit. Um, they tell him that he shouldn't be walking anymore. Yeah. And the man wrestled in 2013, 14 years after this documentary came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, like, we see this, all this footage of Terry Funk doing crazy stuff, like moonsaulting on a barbed wire, getting slammed on an explosive, and appearing in a car commercial. <laughs> um, we get to see a lot of his family, and uh, they're kind of worried about him, saying, you know, they, they think he should have retired five years ago. Um. But they say he's thinking about retiring, and they're pretty sure he's serious this time. Yeah. Um, so, and um, But I do like the juxtaposition because they have that, and then they show a clip of Terry Funk being like, I'm not going to retire. <laughs> yeah, that's the real Terry Funk. Right. Um, so <laughs> my favorite thing is that he's at his daughter's wedding, and – I think it's really funny. It was like, I bet his daughter's like, wow, dad, this is my day, and you're going to make it all about you. You're going to have a documentary crew following you around at my wedding. <laughs> um, uh, one of the reasons why he doesn't want to retire is he's, he's still wrestling. He has a match. Uh, he's wrestling in ECW in Philadelphia. Actually, this is ECW's first pay-per-view event. So this guy, this filmmaker, is at a lot of really important events yeah i mean this this doc came at the right time and just in all the right places exactly uh you know we've talked uh, about ecw we had like a whole ecw episode i don't know that we've really talked about barely legal uh 1997 this is their first pay-per-view before that ecw people would watch ecw in a handful of ways uh if they lived in the new york or philadelphia area it would come on like in the middle of the night uh, or they would, like, sell tapes, like, sell VHS tapes of, of shows. Right, right. Uh, so getting a pay-per-view was a really, really big deal for them, something they worked really hard for, because uh, they've been around for a decent amount of time, even in their extreme championship wrestling name, for a, a while now. Um, and we get some rabid fans outside, um... And uh, we even get a behind-the-scenes look at ECW, which is apparently run out of Paul Heyman's house. Joey Styles is doing an interview while Paul Heyman's mom is ironing. They're all eating a big old bunch of spaghetti together, which looked delicious. (laughs) I didn't notice the spaghetti, but... Yeah, no, they're just passing around bowls of spaghetti. Um, That's neat. But, like, so how much do you know about Paul Heyman? Is Is he also terrible? Okay. In the world of wrestling, with all the other promoters we've seen, if if we were comparing Paul Heyman to a normal boss, then yes, Paul Heyman would be terrible. But when we're comparing him to people like Vince McMahon and the guy who pays his wrestlers $25 a match, he's a saint. Well, and that was the thing um, that, that I really thought the documentary made Heyman look pretty good because, you know, he says that ECW's run out of the house almost like a commune, like... It, it, 
it seems like Paul Heyman is better than at least the alternatives. Paul Heyman was pretty good. He was uh, he let his wrestlers kind of do what they wanted to do. Like he would let them, you know, tell the stories they wanted to tell. When people would come over from WWF and mostly WCW and be really upset, he'd let them go off. Infamously, when Steve Austin got fired from WCW, he came over to ECW and just started cutting promos about WCW. He dressed up like Eric Bischoff, and he dressed up like Hulk Hogan to <laughs> make fun of him. Um, so he was really good in that respect. Now, we're seeing ECW kind of at a height. ECW ends up going out of business in 2001 because Paul Heyman was really good at being a creative mind in wrestling, but not very good at business. ECW, they were, you know, the wrestlers were like calling and booking events or they were, the wrestlers were designing t-shirts, which Um, the wrestlers were the accountants. And, Um, oh my God, that's a nightmare. (laughs) And he didn't, towards the end of it, when they started losing money, he was just not paying them. Uh, even to this day, there are wrestlers that say they're owed like hundreds of thousands of dollars by Paul Heyman. And that's, uh, that's a big question I think that we have to ask here, right? That, that the documentary sort of puts out for us to try to answer. And that is that if you want to run a successful wrestling promotion, do you have to be a piece of garbage? I mean, is it, does it come with the territory? Can you be a good boss and run a good wrestling company? I don't know that I can really think of an example where that hasn't happened. I mean, TNA, I've never really heard that bad of stuff about the wrestling business, about about the, you know, the people in the office. But then again, it's not a good wrestling business. So, I mean, it's, it's it, or like Paul Heyman wasn't that bad, but the business didn't succeed. Um, we've got the new bit, we've got All Elite Wrestling now, AEW, which seems to be, running a good company, and and uh, they're too new to really have done anything terrible yet, but they they that's kind of their motto is, like, bringing people who have been treated really poorly by the WWE. So I guess, I guess to answer the question is, can you be a good wrestling promoter, like, a, like not be immoral of a, of a, of an employer and put on a good product? I guess to answer your question is, Maybe, but it hasn't happened. Remains yet. to be seen, right. Yeah. But then I think, you know, we have another really big question that I'm not even sure I'm prepared to try to offer an answer for. And that is, well, if you can't, if you have to be a piece of garbage and you have to screw over your wrestlers and you have to make these guys put their lives on the line uh, for your product to succeed, is it worth it? Uh, should you even be in the business of doing it? And that is something that I think is a, a much... More complex question. I I, th- I think you will, depending on who you ask, you get different answers. I mean, uh, there are a lot of people who owe a lot to wrestling, like The Rock. The Rock wouldn't be the world's most famous movie star without being a wrestler first. Yeah, I don't think. absolutely, absolutely. Um, but on the other hand, you have people like you know. Jake Roberts, who fortunately has turned things around, but you have a slew of other wrestlers who've died in their 30s and 40s who are seem to be evidence of the opposite. So, And I think, you know, from the individual wrestler perspective, if you're going to go into wrestling, if you're going to do that, then 
It's really about you either make it work for you, like The Rock, or it will chew you up and spit you out. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think is, that not everyone is The Rock. The Rock has a lot of pure, raw absolutely. talent, which is not to say that that makes him better than anyone else or he deserves better than anyone else. It's just to say that The Rock can kind of do what he wants. Like, The Rock, when he comes back, he, he can get away with anything because he's The Rock, you know? Right, right. Um, and I just think that this documentary does a really good job of raising these issues uh, in the first place. Yeah. Um, so we get to see a little bit of uh, Terry Funk wrestling in this match. Uh, he, I think he's already in his 50s by this point. Yeah, they say he's 50 um, years old. He's 50 years old. So he is, you know, I mean, he's doing everything. He's getting bloody. He's jumping off of ladders. Uh getting hit with weapons. Um, He ends up winning the match. He wins the ECW championship. He's a bloody mess. Uh, And I do want to mention something that I, I think we might have seen a little bit of this happening backstage, but I don't know that the viewer could quite understand it without really knowing what was going on. This is their first pay-per-view and you kind of see them being frantic behind there and they, Paul Heyman says something like, we got to get out of there or something. Yeah, they've got to be done in 30 seconds, I think is what he's like talking about. That's because the power is about to go out. Oh, my God. At the In the building. And the power literally goes out about 30 seconds after the show goes off the air. Wow. It, it really did. The power went out at that building about 30 seconds before the show went off the air. That is insane very first pay-per-view you know and i think that like with the archival footage from this doc you could make like three other documentaries probably and that would be one of stuff that didn't make it yeah that's and that's that's so good that is absolutely insane that that but i mean boy they i guess they really pulled it off i mean for a little bit anyway yeah yeah, I mean, ECW's always the little engine that could, for sure. Um, well, uh, we end up, we transition from Terry Funk to a guy who has learned a lot from Terry Funk, owes a lot to Terry Funk. Terry Funk inducted him to the hall, into the Hall of Fame. That's Mick Foley, who, of course, we talked about at length uh, in our last episode. Uh, here we get to talk about a lot of stuff that we didn't really get to cover there, so this is like almost our extended McFoley episode. Yeah, you did a really great job putting this directly uh, behind the McFoley episode because I, I figured it's where it made the most sense. Yeah, there's there's a lot more Foley to be discussed. Um, uh, he gives another really great. His promos in ECW were something to behold. Uh, yeah, man, I I just love watching him do his thing. Uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, Terry Funk. Uh, he, I wrote this line down. I can't really mem- remember the context of it, so maybe you can help me. He says, he burned me, Mommy. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I'm not sure we really given context for it, other than that. I assume he's talking about a, a sort of um, inferno match that might have happened between the two. Yeah, or I mean, they like to use fire and cattle prods and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and it almost um, feels like Terry Funk was Mick Foley's mentor, it, it, the way the two oh, interact. Oh, he definitely was. He was a mentor to a lot of people, but Mick Foley especially. Um, 
the filmmaker is talking about he can't believe these guys are so brutal to each other and can be such good friends. Uh, and Terry Funk actually says, he's like, yeah, the more we beat each other up, the more money we make. So the more money we make, the better friends we are. <laughs> um, so now we start looking at Mick Foley, who uh, has done lots of good things. And apparently Mankind was in a ravioli commercial. I need to look up that ravioli commercial because that looked amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's people talk about the the can rolling all the way home, but they don't ever talk about this Mankind commercial. <laughs> or I uh, think he says something to the effect of, it's the ravioli for all mankind. Yes. Um, uh, the narrator says this really great line that I like. He says, Mick's behavior could be explained if he was crazy, but of all the wrestlers I ever met, he was the most normal. That is the thing, is Mick Foley is, like, one of the smartest wrestlers. Mick Foley is uh, incredibly smart. Um, he's, uh, he's like, an accomplished author. Um, he's, he's, kind of, he's been involved in politics. I mean, he hasn't been, like, I mean, a politician, but he's, like, he, he's really well-knowledged in politics. And above um, all else, he seems to be a man that has his priorities straightened out, and he has figured out what he wants out of life and how he wants to get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is something and that even, like, really intelligent people struggle with, and very few people ever achieve, I think, to the level Mick Foley has. And even though we see Mick Foley going through hell in this, it really is uplifting because Mick Foley is a guy who— it's really nice to see someone because you hear so much about these wrestlers who were had five wives and, like, never see their kids and everything— and it's really nice to see a guy who clearly, despite how much he loves wrestling, he, you know, loves his family so much more. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It's nice to see him as as a family man, something that I think is probably rare in the wrestling business. It, it's um, crazy to nice see him with his kids around and how good he is with them and just how, like, how much he genuinely enjoys his family and being with them. I think it, his... Uh, I, in, Unfortunately, we canceled the WWE Network, but they did do. They did used to have a, a couple, maybe like five years ago. They did this reality show. Uh, I think it was called Holy Foley, where it was like it was it was a reality TV show about Mick Foley and his family. Huh. Um, and uh, I think his son Dewey Foley, the the Kane Dewey, he actually works for the WWE in the office. Oh wow, wow. Uh, um. So that's yeah. I I'm. I'm sure that, as a father, Mick does not want him in the ring. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure when you grow—well, some kids will want to be in in wrestling and follow in their dad's footsteps, but I think maybe if you see the kind of stuff that Mick went through, maybe you wouldn't. Right, right. But Um, it's— it's crazy, you know, and I got to I got to see him the other week at Mississippi Comic Con. Sadly, I did That's not right. get to have my picture or autograph with him because uh, he was asking for a whole sixty dollars for that, and your boy is broke. Um, so maybe maybe another time I'll have the opportunity to. Uh, but I got to I got to witness him with my eyeballs, and he just looks like a kind man. I, I think Mick Foley would be a really great wrestler to meet. I, you know, I've always wondered, like, who would I want to meet the most? And I think Mick Foley would be one of them because he's, he's such a humble guy. Uh, and like I said, he's so he's so smart. I feel like I would almost go and want to talk to him about anything, not even wrestling. Right, right. Uh, 
you know, so... And that is one thing that stopped me from going up there is my sheer anxiety about, like, am I a big enough... Do I know enough about wrestling to go and meet Mick Foley? Am I worthy of him? And I ultimately oh, landed on no. On. I'm sure he would tell you you are. I know he would, and that would that would be the... That would be the worst part of it. He's too nice to me. I don't deserve it. You're right. We've done nothing to deserve Mick Foley. Absolutely. Um, we get some of that great footage of Mick Foley wrestling in his backyard. I love this part where he asks his dad, he's like, hey, can I wrestle with the kids downstairs? It's for the camera. <laughs> and, it's, and it's even better. His dad is like trying to say no, no, because the basement is dirty. He doesn't want the cameras to see his dirty basement. <laughs> Um, and he has a really good relationship with his dad. His dad talks about how nice and polite he is, and Mick Foley just deadpans the camera, and he's like, yeah, I want to be known as the world's most polite wrestler. <laughs> he's really funny, too. He he, uh, he actually does, like, some stand-up comedy, too. Really? Um, oh, I've yeah. got to check that out. Uh, I think it's mostly him talking about himself as a wrestler. Uh, so it's, it's maybe not so much. Uh, stand-up comedy may not be the word. But he did, like he did. He went on this tour where he it was like the twenty year anniversary of him getting thrown off the Hell in a Cell, and he he did like a one man show. Oh, that's so, so cool. Stand up comedy is kind of, I guess, a way to describe it. Um, um, and I just I love how well, and you know, like you were saying, he's incredibly sharp, incredibly it just so different than every other wrestler out there. Yeah, for sure. Um, he's really well, I mean, because of all that, he's really well liked, uh, among other wrestlers. Uh, I've never, I, I, I've never heard of more wrestlers, like so many wrestlers, like Steve Austin, The Rock, they all bring up Mick Foley when they talk about who their best friends in wrestling are. More people mention Mick Foley than anybody else. You know what's crazy is that you told me he feuded with Ric Flair, and, uh, Flair was also at the con, but he was on the other side of the building. <laughs> they are actually friends now. Okay. Um, in fact, there was one incident um, in uh, 2008 where I think some of the wrestlers got drunk before a – you can actually go watch it where it appears like Mick Foley and Ric Flair and JR are all drunk <laughs> at this, at this uh, event where they're supposed to be talking about – I think they're talking about the next WWE video game, which – I have a hard time believing any of those guys play video games. Okay, you know what's hilarious? Is that there is, like, it's like a tradition for people who are guests at E3 to get absolutely slammed before they go on stage. Keanu Reeves just did it. Really? Yeah, so that's... Yeah, but apparently they got in trouble for it, though. Oh, so. I'm sure. Um, But uh, they're actually, they're on much better terms. The the whole feud, I'll because we talked about it a little bit, but we didn't really go into detail. The feud between Ric Flair and Mick Foley all came about f from, for whatever reason, in Ric Flair's book, he called Mick Foley a glorified stuntman. And so they were taking shots at each other in their respective books. Eventually they made up, they buried the hatchet. They did have a little bit of a feud in like 2006, you know, when they're both like, way past their prime but and they had like an i quit match too i um, see i guess i see why rick flair would say that because if you are as old as rick flair and you come from that like 80s pure like you know submission holds and 80s slams and, and like a little bit of 70s too yeah like and you're stuck in the old ways then seeing yeah. all this hardcore stuff 
is, I mean, it's completely changing the landscape, right? And it is not yeah. the same thing. It, and that's, you know, how you often describe these things, like the Hell in a Cell. You say, it's not really a wrestling match. And I think that's sort of where Flair came from with that, probably. Yeah. It's just not a very nice way of saying No, that. absolutely not. I, well, because, you know, he's old, he doesn't want to see it change, so he's definitely slamming yeah. him there, for sure. And yet, Murray Flair's the one who came around and, you know, was in a TLC match when he was, like, almost 60 years old. And yeah. Got thrown on some thumbtacks, so, you know. <laughs> Maybe he, cha- he must have changed his mind. <laughs> um, so... I really like the way we see Mick Foley talking to his kids because it's so sweet and innocent. He's like saying things like, "Oh, don't worry, Daddy rehearsed that four or five times." Right, I know what I'm doing. Uh, absolutely. And it's just, um, I mean, it's crazy to see the composure that this man has when he's talking to his children, and the way that he he really is framing it in a way where he doesn't want them to be scared. He doesn't want them to be worrying about him. Yeah. He does say, and this is important to note because it'll come back up later, he says he doesn't want to be remembered as the guy who pulled socks out of his tights. Talking about Mr. Sokka. Right, right. Uh, There is this one point, which I I feel like I wish we would have gone into a little bit more, where Mick Foley apparently leaves uh, filmmaker Blaustein a, a message it's like rambling, incoherent. He's like calling himself Cactus Jack, and uh, the narrator says he's kind of worried about him. Yeah, I think uh, that he was. That was the call from the emergency room after the '98 Hell in a Cell. Um, yeah, I, I. That is. That's how they kind of. I wasn't sure because they just kind of put it after that, so I wasn't sure if that uh, if I was just drawing that conclusion because I saw them. No, he said he says that he called him from the emergency room and that he was okay. rambling. So I think that was just that was him just being all uh, discombobulated from being thrown off of two very big things. Well, the same we thing twice. That, we see that Hell in a Cell uh, match. Uh, I don't think the documentary crew was actually there for that, but we do see some of the footage of it. Uh, and, and Mick Foley even says he says wrestlers have a better appreciation for the second fall where he goes through the cell roof. Uh yeah, and I had never thought about that before. The way, because of the way he phrases it, you know, he's talking about you throw some when he gets thrown through the table, like a table will break your fall, but that ring does not have a whole lot of give in it. And so yeah, when you just stop. Yeah, when and you hit that, it hurts a lot more. A lot of non-wrestling fans for some reason think that the it's like cushioned or something, but no, it's just like canvas and wood. Right. <laughs> um, and um, I always thought that it kind of had a little bounce to it, but uh no. <laughs> It has it. Well, it has some bounce to it, but it's it, it's literally just like it's like kind of the wood kind of right, shifting, right. It, or the canvas shifting. Not really because it's like got springs. It's in not it, a trampoline know. under there. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> if it was, would you imagine? Could you imagine that? Yeah, high flyer matches would be amazing. Yeah, everything would Dude, be high flyer. Match. If you double bounced Rey Mysterio, <laughs> oh. He'd go to the moon. <laughs> it reminds me of the community episode. Double bounce me. <laughs> um, Mick Foley's wife says she thought he was dead after that. Um, which I can't imagine having that thought all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, hearing he he- that Foley is just like he, I, he, I think 
he's aware that it is that it's a problem, but I think he thinks people are overstating it. I think he thinks that it's, you know, I know I'm fine, everything is fine, it's just, you're getting too worked up. He says his uh, his wife called him, screaming at him, saying he can't do this anymore, and he calls it the, one of the worst moments of his life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now we go to our third main focus of this documentary, um, is Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, another person we haven't really talked about, he's a, he's a pretty big legend in wrestling, but has never really, you know, has never won a lot of titles. I, I don't even know that I could say he's won any titles. Now that I think about it, uh, let me let me let me do a quick Wikipedia of Jake Roberts, um, because I don't think, yeah, he's he's won some titles, but in in the WWE, he never won a single championship. Wow. Uh, and he's pro- he's like one of those who falls in the category of best wrestlers to never win a title. He invented the DDT, the move. You're kidding me. Uh, that was his finisher, and no one had ever done it before. And wow. now it's kind of one of those moves that you know everybody does, so it doesn't have the same impact. But back then, people were like, oh, that's cool. He's dropping a guy on his head. Yeah, I mean, and when you're the guy that invented it, and it's one of those common wrestling moves, that's just crazy. That's yeah. like, could you imagine uh, the guy that made the Irish whip? Yeah, Charles Irish. You know, uh, an interesting question was posed to me uh, the other day from my brother. I think he stole this from another podcast. I'm not sure, but uh, he was asking me if you Irish whipped a man, and there was nothing, there was no rope there. Would he just keep running forever? I there was this one comedy match that uh, that uh, did. Kind of played with that in the WWE, where they Irish whipped a guy and then got out of the ring. <laughs> and since there was no one to stop him, no one to like clothesline him as he was coming back, he just kept bouncing back and forth off the ropes. <laughs> uh, I will let me do correct myself that Jake Roberts did not invent the DDT, uh, but he did give it the name and popularize it. Right. Okay. But I mean, so, still huge deal. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, we're going to talk about Jake the Snake Roberts, called the Snake because he would literally bring a bag of snakes to the ring. He had some really great feuds with uh, Randy Savage. Uh, he actually had Jake Roberts is the guy who Steve Austin beat in the finals of the 1996 King of the Ring. Uh, and after Steve Austin beat him, that's when he gave his Austin 316 speech. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um. So and the reason he gave that is because Jake the Snake had a new gimmick where he was like a like a born again Christian, which yikes! Of course, the WWE is going to do like a religious gimmick, uh, but he was a born again Christian. That was his gimmick, and so he would quote Bible verses, which is why Austin did the Austin three sixteen bit. Right, right. Um, and knowing who he is as a person. Um, from this doc, just big yikes, big yikes there. Um, cause, from the sock? Huh? Knowing who he is from the what? The doc. Oh, the doc. I thought you said the sock, and I was like, we're not talking about mankind anymore. <laughs> but don't worry, we will We will again. Um, so basically, you know, Jake the Snake was really popular in the 80s and early 90s. Then he kind of disappears for a while, and... Um, they do some interviews with Jim Ross and Paul Heyman. They both say he was really smart. 
but all of his encounters with demons, drugs, and alcohol have kind of been destroying him. Um, they quickly interview another promoter that they never really introduce, and he's just kind of a random guy, but he, he says that Jake called him once and said that he wasn't going to show up if they didn't get him some crack. Right. Um, and th- this is where I keep joking about crack being in his, his uh, rider, essentially. Um, th- that is just... Uh, yeah, this man has problems, and sure. we're gonna we're gonna learn a lot more about him as it gets sort of into his his life. But you know, I am not sure. Uh, uh, wrestling didn't help him, but I'm not entirely sure it caused all of these problems. Yeah, I mean, th- and he talks a lot about his his personal life, like when he was a kid before this. You know, I think I do think that. Yeah, you're right. It, it's it would not be fair to blame wrestling on all of this because i mean here's the thing there are plenty of wrestlers who turn out just fine you know yeah Um, yeah so uh, you know a lot of this cannot really be blamed on wrestling um uh, he jake roberts is doing a small show in nebraska so it's basically like he's he's back to basics i think the, the narrator even says you know this is as far down as you can go in wrestling without starting over right um he pees in a bucket. He passes out on a table. He's just a he's a mess. Um, he says this really weird thing, where he he meets a fan of his and like wraps a snake around her, and he says she'll always remember that moment, even if she ends up being a cross dressing truck driver with seven kids and seven husbands. I think what what the hell does that mean? I think what he meant by that. Was that like, because as you learn about his life, nothing has ever really gone well for Jake Roberts. Um, And I think that's the way that he he looks at it is that like this woman's life is will inevitably inevitably turn into garbage in front of her. But even in the midst of that garbage of having seven children and and seven different husbands, you know, being divorced seven times, I think is what he was trying to say. Uh, or, or whatever comes at her, she will always have that moment where she got to meet Jake the Snake, and that will always mean something to her. I, I mean, yeah, I guess I do get what he meant, but it was a very weird and very specific thing to say. No, I, I agree, and I think it's just sort of from his from his background. And also, it implies that there is something wrong with being a cross-dressing truck driver. I agree. That sounds like a very fun life, a very fun occupation. Um... Imagine like that's your that's your company. It's truck drivers, but the gimmick is that they're all cross dressers. I would hire them. I don't even deliver things, and I would hire them. <laughs> just just to give just as a donation. Yeah, just to support them. Um, so they they the filmmaker and Jake Roberts go writing from show to show together. Um, Jake is confiding a lot in him. And man, he just dumps a lot on him. Apparently, his father was dating his grandmother. So, Jake's dad was dating his mom's mom when he had sex with his mom, who was 13 years old. Yeah, he, he raped or his... He, he raped her, I should say. His mother. Uh, um, I can't believe they still have a relationship together. Uh, I don't think they do, because he always talks about his stepmom and his stepdad. So, they definitely... No, it shows him with his dad. Like, oh, oh, you mean him and his dad? I thought you meant. Yeah, I thought you meant dad. the the. Okay, no. Okay, I got you. Yeah, I I, I agree. Like as soon as he mentioned that, I was like, 
clearly this man is not involved in his life because he's a monster. Yeah. And then, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, I guess if you know you're a kid, you have no idea about that, and he raises you. I mean, I guess to be fair, you know, if could be hard to family families are complicated, you know. Right. So I I, I, I can't judge him for. Oh no, I'm not judging him for it, uh, and it's just one of those things that it just goes to show how deeply messed up this man's life is. Yeah, uh, his dad was a wrestler, Grizzly Smith. Um, his dad has had some other children who, uh, some of them have also become wrestlers. Um, one of them says that, yeah, so Jake Roberts' sister says she was raped by her own father. Oh my god. Um. So, yeah, uh, not not a great family <laughs> no um and definitely like well, you not see a, well i i'm not gonna put say, i meant like not a great family life I, it, yeah the no. family is fine minus this one guy uh and you see though you see where jake roberts gets his whole outlook on life because all he has ever known is this mm-hmm. he says he's always wanted to make his dad proud uh, he does say that traveling on the road has like completely ruined a lot of stuff. Like, he talks about his sex life where he just meets random people and ha- and starts having sex with all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, and then he comes home and he can't have sex with his wife. Um, uh, yeah, so. no, the, the line, then you realize you can get it every day. And then you start, you know, getting it three times a day. And then, two, two, from two at once. And then... Two at once with toys, and then yeah. two at once, and you just you just watch. <laughs> I will say, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like. I mean, when you're, you know, there's no off season. You're traveling like three hundred days of the year. Um, not to say that any of that is an excuse to, you know, cheat on your spouse, but you know, I, I can't imagine you know, how hard it must be on a, on a marriage. Yeah, no, and that's a very serious point. It's just a very, um, it's kind of funny, <laughs> the way that he says it. The way that he says it is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, no, and definitely, you know, you're talking about the, the schedule, doing it, uh, wrestling every single day and all that, which he gets into later when he talks to his daughter, but, uh, and how that does, I do see where that could definitely build a drug problem. Yeah. Um, now we talk about China a little bit, who we've, we've talked about here some, um, the narrator says she, there was a lot that surprised him about her, uh, like how she was a really good student, um, her mother was apparently all buttons and bows and tea time, um, and she says she's, there's a lot of woman power here that I really like, China says she's just as feminine as any other woman, because she's super confident in her body and herself, it's really great to see China here because the other stuff I've seen from China is is really sad, especially you know because she passed away a couple years ago um, after you know getting into a lot of drug problems herself. Uh, she was on all those reality shows for a while. And this is something that definitely China is someone that the WWE chewed up and spit out. Like that is a lot of that. I feel um, for sure is on film. Yeah, I mean. There's the whole thing with Triple H. She was dating Triple H, and she says that he cheated on her with Stephanie McMahon and all this kind of stuff, and they've, they're have they real hush-hush about her. She was technically recently inducted into the Hall of Fame, 
uh, as part of Degeneration X. So that's a little something, you know, showing that they are giving her some recognition in that way. Uh, um, yeah, but it's it, honestly of all the wrestlers that, and this is the thing, right? You know, we, we did talk about earlier, a lot of it depends on the wrestler. Like, if you're a, a rock, then you are going to come out the other side. You might be fine. Um, but the ratio of wrestlers that come out fine and wrestlers that come out dead or deeply, deeply messed up is um, pretty tilted towards the the latter. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I'd say the majority end up... Uh, Maybe maybe not the majority, but close. For sure. I mean, I I, I definitely think it's a majority. I, I would say. Uh, I don't know enough about it really, but I would say that. I don't know. It's it's hard to say because it's like it's like one of those things how you know you hear about every plane crash that happens, uh, but not every car crash. It's kind of like this. You hear about every wrestler that you know dies gets on drugs has a, you don't you don't hear about every wrestler who's like oh they're doing just fine that is you true know? that is true so uh I, you know i don't want to jump to that conclusion but do you think uh, really briefly i'm ahead. sorry i was just gonna say uh do you think that the really successful guys sort of have their own bubble i just because we see a little bit later uh, some stuff where where rock and uh foley and are hanging out and austin comes and says hello and like it seems like the circles that they run in, that you have sort of two different uh, arenas there. But even, like, people like Austin, like Steve Austin, he had to retire really early. Yeah. Uh, you know, from his neck injuries, his knee injuries. You know, he, uh, not nearly as bad as Jake Roberts, but he got into some substance abuse. He became an alcoholic. Uh, he had, you know, he was... Got in some trouble for some domestic abuse. Oh, wow. You know? I did not know so, that. Okay. Never mind then. It, you know, it really it, – it does kind of affect everybody in in, in some way. Uh, so, you know, not a, no one is really immune to it. Just some people are lucky. Um, we briefly see Matt Heisen, who they don't actually say this, but that's Spike Dudley. Um, he's getting interviewed – while he's all bleeding from his head. Uh, he was apparently a third-grade teacher before getting into wrestling who really liked Shakespeare. Yeah, I never would have thought Spike Dudley was a Shakespearean scholar. Hey, you never know about about people, uh, <laughs> their prior careers. And then we even get to see some people, you know, what happens to them after wrestling, like Jesse Ventura, who became the governor of Minnesota. Uh, yeah, yikes. Or now we have Kane, who's the mayor of Knox County. Uh, yeah, man, it produces a lot of uh, a lot of great politicians. As you know, Jake I, talks about when he's in Nebraska, he's like, "I could be, I could be mayor. Of this, I could be, I could say I want to be mayor, and they'd make me mayor, and they wouldn't even do anything with the current mayor. And I'd just be like a king, like a tyrant mayor." Jerry the King Lawler apparently ran for mayor of Memphis one time. He lost, but I think he came in like second place. That is crazy. Um, so, yeah, wrestling has produced at least two politicians. Or three, if you count Donald Trump. Ugh. Um, the, uh, the narrator says that he didn't think wrestling could surprise him anymore until Vince McMahon became a performer. It, you know, and we talk about, you know, who else would be more hated than the boss? You know, who doesn't like seeing the boss get punched in the face? 
Bruce Springsteen uh, didn't deserve all of this. <laughs> that was a good one. And then there was New Jack. Who I wish they would have talked a little bit more about New Jack, because New Jack is really, really nuts. Yeah, because um, uh, New Jack, if you remember, like tried to murder a man for real in the ring. <laughs> yeah, they even briefly mentioned that. They're like, he says something like how they're, he's like, never met a man that he had more in common with that also had like, Four justifiable homicides. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and New Jack is you think it's like part of his character or whatever because he's like I'm a violent person. I'll get in the ring and I'll hurt you. And you're like, yeah, oh, he's so, just still in character. No. So this is actually the the big incident comes after this happens in October of 2004. New Jack was scheduled to fight fellow wrestler William Jason Lane. During the match, New Jack pulled out a metal blade. And stabbed Lane 14 times. Uh, this action caused New Jack to receive various felony charges, including aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and aggravated assault to commit murder. Uh, but here we get to see him go to an audition in Hollywood. That was very strange. Yeah, and that's a, maybe the strangest thing that happens on this documentary. You get to see him give a read, and it's terrible. And the casting directors are like, oh, yeah, that was really good. I could see him as a leading man. And it's like, you are lying through your teeth. And that's... It almost is a good parallel between that and, you know, when J.R. and Vince and Cornette are telling these, you know, guys who get the tryout match that, you know, they're really good and that they could make it. Right, and that's what I was saying at the top of the show is that that's just... This doc really shows how that works in show business, where you're always... You're you're never just told no. Mm-hmm. That was strange. I, I I wish we would have gone more into New Jack here, but uh, we didn't. Maybe for the best because he's a little bit too crazy. Yeah. Um, Terry Funk announces his retirement at the end of 1997. Once again, um, he they're having a match at a fairground of all places in Amarillo. But it's got all these, like, big-name stars. And I, I looked it up. This was an event. It, the whole event was marketed as, this is Mick Fol- or this is Terry Funk's last match. Um, and it got all these people who, you know, nowadays, I would, you, you would never have, like, WWE wrestlers wrestling for some other company. Yeah. But here we get Mankind there, uh, who's in WWF. We get... Uh, a bunch of guys from ECW, uh, and then we get Bret Hart from WCW um, wrestling Terry Funk in the main event. Isn't uh, it weird that WCW is almost completely left out of this documentary? Uh, it's because they didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. And I, I kind of wondered, though, if maybe that was a condition for them to work with the WWF as well, but... Who knows? I don't know. I'd have to look into that. But WCW, yeah, they were they really wanted to be closed off. I, I'm not surprised, you know, because Ted Turner was, you know, owned WCW, so I'm sure he was like really cautious about right, you know, right, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and and that's the thing is w, WCW did not want to be involved with WWF and even less so ECW. Um, they thought they were pure garbage. Uh. But yeah, so we we get all those guys. It, it is. I, I'm just. I'm. I'm uh, impressed that all these big names come out to this thing. Um, <laughs> there's this weird moment, 
and and you 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 also picked up on this. I see in your notes, uh, Dennis Stamp, who is a former wrestler and friend of Terry Funk's, who is um, sad and hilarious and pitiful and cringy all rolled into one. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to watch. He's basically like runs like a pest control thing, and he's like, what do they call him? Like the Roach King or something? Yeah. And he's really upset that he wasn't booked to be in this show to wrestle. And he says he hasn't wrestled since 1991. This is 1997. But he's like still, you know, he keeps in shape just because someone may call. You never know when the next call is going to come. It's like, oh, this is hard. He's so caught up in his own ego that, like, he's not going to go to the show. He's like, I'm not going to go because I'm not on the card. And you know it's always been a rule of mine. And this is someone that... And you get to see him have a little bit of a breakdown here. Like, he is... Because they talk about the the fame and everything, right? This is someone that chased that, and he didn't get his fill. He he desperately wanted more. Exactly. Yeah, Dennis Stamp, uh, you know, I, it's not he's not that well-known. Uh he he didn't really wrestle in any real big promotions, mostly just kind of around in the NWA. Uh, but he's ma- he's mad at Terry Funk for some reason that he wasn't booked for this show. Uh, and he's like, and Terry Funk's like, why aren't you going to come? And he's like, because I wasn't booked. And it's like, okay, that doesn't mean just because you're not wrestling doesn't mean you can't come. Right, and he's he's like, I called you six months ago and asked if I could be a referee for this, and and you what you didn't hear my messages then, and it comes off as him being a little unhinged. Yeah, and he basically, like, strong-arms Terry into making him the referee for this match. Yeah. It's, uh... uh it's very sad. Yeah. And it, he's so happy about it, and it's like... He just comes across looking as, like, a dick, honestly. Yeah, no, he he absolutely does. Um, And, I mean, and he talks about, like, he... And he sort of... He's like, oh, I deserve to be in this show or whatever. But then he, he... No wonder he didn't get booked. He's an asshole. Yeah, but he starts talking about that. You know, I, I remember when we were backstage and those old guys would come in and they looked like dogs just looking for somebody to remember their name and say, oh, that spot. And that's me now. That's who I am. And it's like, whoa, dude, you are, uh... You're not in a great place, huh? Mm-mm. Um... There's gonna be me one day with this podcast... In what? How? In what way? Because you're gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna do podcasting, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna be like that guy. I'm gonna be like. So you're not the Jake Roberts. You're the Dennis Stamp. Yeah, I want to be the Dennis Stamp. I want to be like, oh, you guys, you're having your your live shows, and I'm not on the ticket. I'm not coming. Ah. We would always invite you, unless you start acting like. This guy. Well, that's the thing. I th- let me I th- say I'm this, thinking though. I will. But anyways. <laughs> let me say this, though. The Roach King is a great gimmick. And I am the Roach King. <laughs> um, so he gets to referee the match. Um, Terry comes out accompanied by his brother Dory. Um, and Paul Heyman comes out and presents Terry Funk with a replica of the ECW world title belt and c- declares him the lifetime ECW champion, which is a very sweet 
thing. I think I, I missed this. I did want to mention this, is that during that ECW show, Paul Heyman gives this big speech to all the ECW wrestlers saying, make sure you thank Terry Funk for all he's done for ECW. Yeah, yeah. He really does give uh, Terry the credit that he is due. Uh, Terry Funk loses, and uh, as he explains, you know, it's one of those things that I mentioned. They like to let the young guy win and go out on your back, although Bret Hart is the young guy here, despite the fact that he's going to have a career-ending in injury in 2000. So, mm. Bret Hart only has about three and a half years left in the company, or in the business. Yeah. Although, Bret Hart does come back and wrestle, despite not being medically cleared to compete. Um, so now we're going to go back to Jake Roberts. Uh, he is going to visit his daughter in college. Who She's getting her master's in psychology. He says she's a real freak. Um, she shows off this book she made with letters and cards her dad has written her. Apparently they haven't seen each other in four years. Okay. Uh, he's on. Can we talk about this book? Sure. I get that Jake the Snake Roberts was not a good dad. I understand that. I understand the man is flawed. She is a sophomore in college, and she's made this book of all the letters she ever wrote him, and she's marked them all out and torn well, them it up. Well, says she's getting her master's in psychology, so I think she's even older. Than oh, that. yeah, you are correct. I apologize. Um, yeah, she is a grown woman who is, who's, like, created this very angsty 16-year-old-style scrapbook, and I'm just like, wh what? I thought it was a little bit goofy, but, like, given the kind of dad that he is, I mean, he's, you know, she could be a lot worse. She could be a she lot worse. She could be like Jake Roberts. Absolutely. I mean, and no, no doubt about that. It's just one of those things that, like, this family, it just, they're very messed up. It, it's almost as if she is in a state of arrested development over her father. Yeah, they talk on the phone, and she's, like, a little bit nervous. She even says she's nervous. Um, and she asks if she can bring some friends over, and he you could tell it's really affecting him. Um, they uh, She even says she's not sure if he's ready to be a father. It's like, well, you're a grown woman, so it's, you know, he's, that, that ship has kind of sailed for him to be ready. Right, right. And and that's one thing that's hard to watch here is that Jake Roberts is it looks like he's trying to do his best. It really does yeah. look like he is giving an effort, and it's really hard for him. And he's get he's not getting anything from from her. Uh, I don't well, I don't know. I have a lot of sympathy for her because there there's one point where he says they meet each other, and then he in five minutes he goes he goes back to his hotel room. Right, and that was garbage. That was truly trash. Um, and I'm not saying it's, it's not that it's a easy thing for her to do. It's just tragic to watch it. Yeah. Um, he even mentions like, you know, people ask him all the time, you know, if you're making this good money, why don't you just take some time off to see your family? He's like, well, I couldn't do that. They would fire me. I'm, I'm required to be on the road constantly. Right. Um, right. I've just, I've always wondered, you know. Maybe it's one of those things, people will laugh at you and be like, what are you talking about when I mentioned like wrestling having an off-season? Or even like two schedules, like two rosters almost, like where, you know, 
you let some people go go off and then you bring some people in where they like rotate. I don't know. I just to me people come up with all these excuses for wrestling and it, it's always so selfish like oh well I want to see that. Like I want to see my favorite wrestler all the time or like oh I like seeing blood. I like seeing people fall right. off stuff. I like pe- seeing people get hit in the head with a chair. At the end of the day, you know, like is it worth it? Who is it? Yeah, who cares? Like, I don't like you know. And this is like I, I genuinely think that we should have a a ban on child actors. Um, and people are like, well, then how would be kids be portrayed in movies? I don't know, but I also don't really care. Um, yeah. it's it society should not be sacrificing people for our amusement. Yeah, there has to be like you know a certain place to draw the line there you have to be willing to give something up when people's health and lives and families are at risk yeah absolutely um Uh, and that's i I agree it's an incredibly selfish thing because like yeah i like seeing blood too i like seeing chair shots too i love all that stuff i love those old matches but i recognize that the wwe is so much better today because that is not present. Yeah. yeah people talk about the pro- – people always talk about – they're like, oh, I want to see the Attitude Era again. It's like, well, you know what? You can't. Like, that's over. I would like that's to see some of the goofy again. storytelling from the Attitude Era. That's that's what I, I would like, but I wouldn't want to see any of the other stuff again. Yeah. Um, Jake even, you know, kind of touches on suicide – um, he does that in a very messed up way. Um, that he's sort of almost being manipulative to his daughter with it. Yeah, and uh, it's it, not okay. But again, I, extremely messed up family. I see that. Yeah. Um, he says he he swore he was never going to treat his kids the way his father treated him, but now he realizes that's exactly what he's doing. Eventually, they uh, they leave, and the narrator says, you know, he ended up going into his room, and he, he went in there, walked in on him, smoking crack. Um, so. Yeah. Um. Uh, I, let me say this about Jake Roberts. He has gotten a lot better since this documentary. Uh, there's a, actually a new documentary that came out about him that's about his recovery. Um, basically, he... Uh, he moved in with Diamond Dallas Page, a fellow wrestler, who helped him beat his addiction. Um, and from what I know, he's he's been clean for like eighteen years now. Wow! Is he? Or is he? Do you know years, if he's sorry, on like better terms with his family? Years. Sorry, uh, I don't know about that. Um, I hope so, because it's just so sad. Yeah. Um, but he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. He, uh, but yeah, apparently he is. He's done a lot better. He's been clean for several years, from what I've heard. So you know, that is nice because usually when you see someone like that, you know, you think, oh, they don't have long. Yeah. When the last Literally, thing you see in the documentary is a man rambling while he's high on crack about how much all of his life sucks, um, you typically don't don't think that that's gonna pan out well. Yeah, so I, I thought it was important to mention is that he does – this is not, you know, the end of his story. He does get much better, so he does have a, a happy ending there. Right, and but he does talk about, you know, with the schedule, that is one thing that 
turned him towards drugs is that you're taking pills at night to go to sleep. You're doing cocaine in the morning to wake up for your matches because you're constantly traveling. Uh, he said catching and, eight or nine planes a week. That is just insane. And that's one big reason. And here's the other thing is a lot, except for maybe the top, top town, a lot of wrestlers have to pay for their own travel and their own hotel rooms. Wow, really? Yeah. It's that whole independent contractor work thing that's you know kind of come out recently. That is um, insane. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of time is driving, and that's that they're driving their own cars. Wow! You know, and their own their own gas. Um, but uh, and I think we should also a- note that the they mentioned at the top of this documentary in the late nineties that the WWF. Uh, now the WWE is worth uh, over a billion dollars, yeah. and that is a crazy amount of money to be treating people like this. Absolutely, um, that is one reason a lot of people go. A lot of people were going to WCW, and a lot of people were going to TNA is because the schedule was so much better. Um, Kurt Angle's a big example of that. Is he left the WWE on his own because he was starting to get into drugs and stuff? Because the schedule is so horrible, you know. Whereas WWE has, at that point, was having two shows a week, um, in addition to a pay per view every month, uh, plus house shows, um, plus any other kind of public appearances they need to make. That's a lot. Where and and traveling all over the country. Whereas TNA would travel for their pay per views, but all of their Live shows would always be in Orlando. Uh, all their TV shows would be in Orlando. Uh, WCW would mostly stay in the South. Uh, it was a lot easier on people to not have to do that much. Right, right. Um, and that, that's a lot to expect from people. So we're going to go back to Mick Foley now. Um, apparently... Uh, the narrator has gotten a call from Mick Foley, uh, who says they've given him the WWF title, which we talked about in our last episode where we saw Mick Foley finally get to the top and win the WWF championship from The Rock on Raw. Uh, but he is going to lose it at the Royal Rumble. Um, he's really excited. He brings his whole family to the show. Uh, and this is going to be that pretty infamous I Quit match between Mankind and The Rock. Um, there, we get to see them kind of talk about their match before stuff we don't really normally get to see. Um, right. And he, he even he even tells his kids, he's like, you know, Rock is daddy's friend. He's not going to do anything to really hurt me. Um, and that is crazy the way, just sitting there watching them talk about it. And they're like getting really excited and they're having a good time uh, talking about what will infamously become probably, I, I, don't, I don't know if you would agree with this, but the most brutal match um ever probably yeah it's it's not one that has the big spectacle of falling off of cell but it's it's bad it's it's not good it's not fun really to watch no it's not it's it's and that's what Mick Foley says now you know in interviews and stuff he's like Whenever someone comes up to me and is like that's my favorite match of yours it kind of makes me mad he's like that is the we went way too far 
that was mm-hmm. way too much, and we should never have done that to ourselves. And for a guy who's done all the stuff he's done to his body to to say that he went too far doing something is right is saying something to be fine falling off of a cell and through a table or through a cell and into the ring, but not being okay with this means that this was a lot. Can you can you briefly talk about the practice of cheer shots to the head and what that is and how it has been banned? So typically, when people get hit with a chair, usually if they get hit in the head, they put their hands up to kind of block it. Even that will still put some impact on your head because you can't fully block your whole head. Um, and there's always a risk, of course. Um, now, getting hit in the head without putting your hands up, now that is just stupid. Um, you know, having someone slam a, you know, the chairs are real, slam a steel chair into your head. I'll never forget, I read this by Edge. He said he got hit in the head with a chair so hard one time he could taste the metal. Mm. Um, I don't even know how that works, but... It does, apparently. I mean, have um, you ever, you know, I, 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 can, I can see what he's trying to say, that sting that, that you can feel from that kind of thing, that shooting pain. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not great. And now the WWE has banned chair shots to the head, protected or otherwise, uh, and, and people, will, they'll get fined if they do that. And, so now whenever they use, if you watch someone use chairs, they're getting hit in the back, they're getting hit in the stomach, they're you know they're using it on their legs or arms. Never, never the head. And even now, when the WWE will show chair shots to the head in archive footage, they will do this weird thing where they cut out the impact. Wow! So if you if you watch something that they put on the air now, where someone hits somebody with the head, it'll like freeze right when they're about to hit them, and then cut to after they've been hit. Because that is also even... a concussion machine. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and stuff like chair shots to the head are, are what is blamed on you know stuff on wrestlers dying early and the Chris Benoit situation. Right now, you know they've never truly been able to connect that, but you got to think when you know they do an autopsy on a man in his forties and show that he has a brain of an eighty-year-old dementia patient, the getting hit. Because he was notorious for taking a lot of unprotected chair shots, and you got to think that being hit in the head with a chair did not help the situation. And you've got to think about like too. You know, we're seeing all this medical science come out about football players now, and how almost every single football player has this degenerative brain disorder that you can you can't detect it while they're alive. You can only detect it via autopsy once they've died. Um, and like the chances of that, if you even played high school football are incredibly high. Uh, so, you know, think about football and the padding and the protective helmets, and they're just slamming into each other. And now think about taking all that protection away and hitting someone in the head with a steel chair. There are a lot of people now who think that what Benoit had was probably CTE, but that just that we didn't know what CTE was even back then. Right, and I do uh, believe CTE is the thing that all of these professional football players are, are being, um, that's being found in them. Yeah, yeah, um... It's kind of off topic, but it's it's on my it's in my brain right now because I'm I'm we're talking about it. There was this commentator, he used to be a football player, and then he, Mike Adamley, and then he used to do commentary for football, and then eventually they brought him in to the WWE. I don't really know why they brought in a non wrestling guy to be a wrestling commentator, 
So that was a little bit part of why he would say a lot of things that, like, it would be like you could tell he didn't know what he was talking about. Right. They they now know he has dementia and probably has CTE. Obviously, there's no way for them to know. So a lot of the times, you know, when people think back and they made fun of all the stuff he said that was so dumb, now people are realizing, oh, he wasn't really just – he wasn't dumb. He, he's he been hit in the head so many times. Right, right. And this is all relatively – you know, the long-term effects of this stuff is relatively new medical science. So when you say, yeah. why would well, Nick like saying, Foley agree to this match – he doesn't understand – I think Foley sees it as if I get out of the match alive, I'll recover. I'll be just fine. And to be fair, this Matt, he was not supposed to be hit in the head with a chair as many times as he was. Apparently, they agreed on five times. He actually gets hit in the head with a chair 11 times. Now, getting hit in the head with a chair five times unprotected was not – that was also not a good idea. But the 11 times, it just got out of hand. Yeah. Um. So we, Mick Foley's family is at ringside. So I, I've watched this match just as itself. I think we both have. Yes. But I've never watched all of this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, again, it's one of those things in the right place at the right time of this huge eye-opening moment for Mick Foley. Um, so it's a, an I-quit match where the objective is to beat your opponent until they say that they quit. Um, they have this big brawl. You know, they get... You know, Mick Foley gets thrown off, you know, a balcony. Uh, it, all the normal stuff gets put through the announce table. Um, but it's the big finish of the match where The Rock handcuffs Mick's hands and starts hitting him in the head with a steel chair. And that what was supposed to happen was they were supposed to, he was supposed to beat him up to the entrance ramp before he finally gave up. Well, somehow they had, they weren't getting to the spot, the location they needed to be quick enough. So he had to keep hitting him. And basically, he just hit him too many times in the ring. So by the time they were starting to move up the ramp, the chair shots were growing and growing. We see his family, and it is—it's this match was hard. It's hard to watch by itself, but watching it and seeing how upset his family is—oh, it's bone chilling to see the the look on these children's faces. Yeah, uh, eventually they have to just leave because they can't take watching it anymore. His 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 kids are crying. Um. Eventually, Mick Foley comes back, and he's a bloody mess. He's the ring crew. Foley, they're all trying to make him feel better. They're like, "Oh, he's fine. It's just, it's just a boo boo," is what they said. Um, the wrestlers are cheering for him when he comes backstage. I honestly think that some of now, obviously, it's not their fault, but a lot of these other wrestlers who are encouraging him, I almost feel like that's bad. You know? Yeah. Oh, it definitely is. I mean, definitely, and around like his kids too, being like, "Oh yeah, man, that was awesome." And that's where you see, like, right here at this point in time, directly after the match, Foley does not believe what he believes now. He he's yeah. like, "No, that was we that was important." I think we reached some people, and he's talking about the Rock. He's like, "I'd probably strangle him if he was here." But if you go back and watch the match, I bet that those last few chair shots are really what make it. Um. And he's completely sort of brushing off the fact that his family is traumatized because he's too caught up in, in what he's just done and in the, the affirmation that he's getting from, from the industry. Yeah. His, his wife is, is kind of not happy with him. Uh, you know, she says she doesn't think she could take this anymore. Um, she's even asking him questions like, what time is our flight tomorrow? Because she's, she even says she's trying to make sure that he still can remember. 
Oh yeah. Um, apparently there there was uh there was some real heat between Rock and and Mick Foley after this because Mick Foley says the Rock never came and checked on him, uh, and they weren't on the best of terms for a while. They're they're better now, and and the Rock has since said you know that was a mistake. I sh- I should have come and talked to him. Um. <laughs> Later, Mick Foley ends up watching this match with his family there, um, and that's when he begins to realize that he went too far. Yeah, he sees the documentary footage of his yeah, kid's that's reaction. True. That's true. And that's when he's like, oh, man, that's not good. And I think that this documentary is, you know, we talk about right place, right time, but I think that this genuinely changed Mick Foley's career path. Yeah. Uh, I think that that moment of him seeing the documentary footage and him sort of waking up to what was going on is entirely uh, a direct connection between this and, like, what ends up happening with Rock and Sock, right? Like, where he says, okay, I need to step back from the physical punishment. Yeah. And it's not long after this that he ends up becoming... Um, he ends up going into... Semi-retirement, you know, as I mentioned, he comes back out, but uh, it's just a little bit over a year, so it's uh, it's like, the sp- this is January of 1999, it's like the spring of 2000 is when he goes into, you know, non-active, you know, competition. Um, so yeah, he's not long to be a- an active competitor anymore. Um, yeah, and I think this documentary was maybe a good thing because it opened his eyes up to you know what his family was seeing and he realizes he couldn't put them through that anymore yeah because i mean when he sees it he says you know i feel like i've been a bad dad and that's never a feeling i've i've ever had before Mm -hmm. uh and so to to realize too i think it's very interesting that physical pain means almost nothing to mcfoley he will he'll do it you know but the mental anguish of his family is where he draws the line. And that, I think, is the mark of a really great guy. Yeah. That's 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 a good point. Um, so we're wrapping up the end of the documentary. They kind of run through, you know, like do a where are they now kind of thing. Uh, Tony and Mike, the, the guys from the independent wrestling company, don't ever end up making the WWF. Funk's retirement only lasts three months before he retires again in 1999 and then comes back and back and back and keeps coming back. Um, he did get his knee surgery. Well, that's good. Um, and then uh, apparently Jake the Snake ends up having to spend some time in jail for unpaid child support. But as I mentioned, he does end up going... And, and getting better and getting clean. Draws doesn't make it as puke, but come, becomes successful under the name Draws until he's paralyzed, as I mentioned. And then ECW, they talk about ECW's doing pretty good. They just signed a deal with TNN, but that doesn't last very long either, and they end up going out of business. Uh, the, meanwhile, the WWF apparently just became a publicly traded company. So some goods and bad endings for, for, every, for everyone involved. But uh, overall, I thought this was a uh, 
It's a very eye-opening documentary. I'm glad. I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know your last note here about the the narrator says he still loves wrestling, and that's the thing is that it, it, it seems almost uh, sorry, bump my mic. It seems almost uh, that these things are diametrically opposed. Like you can think that what's going on is messed up, or you can like wrestling. But I would argue that you you can do both. You can. You can say that wrestling definitely has a place and that it is something that can be watched and celebrated and enjoyed while simultaneously saying, but you know what? We can also do so much better for these guys. These guys don't have to live the way that they are being forced to live. They, they don't have to deal with uh, great bodily injury. We can tone it back and still have the product we enjoy. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this is that, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, how great wrestling is and how great the matches and the stories are. But there are a lot of real risks and real, you know, people put themselves through, and people go through a lot of terrible stuff, you know, not only in the ring, but, you know, the way they're treated by their employers that's not good. And it's it's something that I, you know, I wanted to talk about. Yeah, there are victims. There are victims to wrestling. Yeah, and there are plenty more than just the people in this documentary. Absolutely. Um, well, that's going to about do it for us here. Uh, you know, we – hold on, i got to look up. I forgot what we're doing next week. <laughs> <laughs> or in two weeks. Oh, yeah, that's the one. All right, that's going to about do it for us uh, for this week's episode. We want to encourage you to watch along with us. Uh, so in two weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, a fun rivalry, one that I was watching as a kid and was so enthralled by. It really takes some time to blur the lines of what's real and what's and what's scripted, and we get to see real life turning into a storyline. It's uh, the rivalry between Matt Hardy and Edge, uh, Back in 2005, ooh, um, a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff we're going to be watching is stuff that's you know, uh, interviews that they did that are kind of in character, but also kind of not. Uh, it's a very interesting thing. It's something that's always enthralled me. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about that. Yeah, get ready to see Matt Hardy hurt. Yeah. Um. And don't forget, you can always uh, follow along with us. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Turnbuckle Train. Uh, shoot us an email at turnbuckletraining at gmail.com. Let us know if there's anything you'd like for us to discuss. And don't forget to subscribe to us uh, on iTunes, Spotify, however you get your podcasts. And uh, don't forget to rate and review us. Anything to add? Uh, I wait. I don't think I have a. I don't think I got a line here. Cool. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it's me, Austin. The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you and sacrifice. Oh, son of a bitch. Oh, my God. I did it for the love. Get ready for the bonkerest event of the summer. A three big dudes production.
Starring me, professional toe sucker. No, we won't talk about that, but we will talk about Waluigi, Dog with a Blog, the similarities between Alf and Cousin Skeeter, and of course, the Slither. It's Feud Fight, where we take the wild questions most people won't touch and give our scalding hot takes. And I also say terrible things that could loosely be considered word crimes, just to keep things a little spicy. Every Monday, wherever you find your podcasts.